0: I'm Richard Parker. I'm senior fellow here at the Shorenstein Center, and welcome all of you to another in our Brown Bag uh, Lunch Series. Uh, today we have two speakers, uh, David Rode and Kristen Muldehill, uh husband and wife, uh, who are going to talk about the experience uh, that they lived through uh, when David, as a New York Times reporter in Afghanistan, was kidnapped with an Afghan colleague and held by uh, uh, a break a breakaway group. Is that fair enough to say, or a no. subgroup? Okay, you'll tell us more, a major group, sorry, (laughs) (coughs) and uh, uh, amazingly uh, was able to escape and is, of course, here today. And the book is uh, a powerful one on several levels. It's an examination of the politics of South Asia. It's also a story about the difficulty of uh, a a couple's life under such conditions. And uh, uh, it is is a superior uh, uh, piece of work, which I commend to all of you for its complexity and beauty and wisdom so David would you like to go first
1: sure um, thank you I'm gonna I'll talk first to just kind of outline the kidnapping itself and what happened over those seven months and then Kristen will talk about um, her side of the story the book is written in alternating chapters um, with me starting and then to Kristen's experience in New York and it just it's it's a straight narrative that covers the seven months and ten days I was in captivity um, on a personal note, I'm thrilled to be back here among friends. Um, I was a fellow here at the Shorenstein Center um, in, uh, in 2005 and, and loved it and became um, good friends with many people. It's great to see Richard and um, Edie here hiding behind the post, the secret <laughs> force behind the center. <laughs> and uh, I love calling him Ambassador because it upsets him so much. Jonathan Moore um, has become uh, one of our closest friends, and uh, <laughs> we tried to make this sort of a three-way presentation, but he refused. <laughs> um, he should take as many questions today as we do. Um, he, Jonathan, he to talk for a Actually bit. Jonathan
2: and Katie, um, and I spoke regularly during David's captivity. Um, they were a tremendous, you know, source of support and friendship, um, and actually, you know, a tremendous sounding board for some of the ethical issues I dealt with throughout, so I'm so thrilled they're here today.
1: And um, Jonathan Cady also read every page of this book before it was published <laughs> and did an incredible job um, helping us write it and edit it and uh, smoothing over the minor rough patches that occur when a husband and wife write a book together. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and another friend here is Charlie Sennett, the <laughs> editor and head of Global Post. It's great <laughs> to see you. Um, so I'll quickly run through the captivity. if. For those of you who um, read the series I wrote about in the New York Times, I'm sorry I think this is repetitive, Um, this is sort of down in the weeds um, because, uh, you know, this is a a center on the the press, politics, and public policy. And I'm going to highlight the parts of the captivity that reflect on the relationship between the Haqqani network, the Taliban faction that had me, and their relationship with the Pakistani military. Um, the journalist Steve Call, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about whether the Pakistani military is supporting the Taliban, in particular the Haqqani uh, network. Um, and the journalist Steve Call said it's an unusual situation where, in a sense, the United States is giving aid to the Pakistani military every year, and uh, we're, in a sense, at, at war with our own ally because they seem to be simultaneously supporting some Taliban factions, in particular the Haqqanis. Um, I was uh, kidnapped in November 2008 um, outside of Kabul. I was working on a book about Afghanistan since 2001. Um, I was struck during a reporting trip on how popular the Taliban had become and made the decision that I needed to speak to a Taliban commander and essentially have a Taliban character in the book for it to be as sort of th- as, uh, as thorough as possible. Um, I heard about a Taliban commander who had done interviews with two other um, foreign journalists. Um, he had not kidnapped them. Um, I met with one of those journalists. She was a European journalist uh, the night before my interview. Um, she had interviewed this Taliban commander twice. Um, she said, it's different because you're an American. There is more danger, but I don't believe he'll kidnap you. Um, unfortunately, we were all wrong, and uh, we drove to the interview the next morning. It was a trap. Um, basically uh, the, the road was blocked uh, as we drove to the meeting point, and gunmen uh, jumped in our car, um, and that was the beginning of our uh, time in captivity. Um, Within 48 hours of the kidnapping, the Haqqani network itself uh, was involved. Uh, The Haqqanis are based in Pakistan in an area called North Waziristan. Um, A very close friend of mine and an incredible Afghan journalist, um, Abdul Wahid Wafa, just walked in back here. He was the heart and soul of the New York Times Kabul Bureau for years. Um, I've been working with him since 2001, and he's uh, here as a Nieman Fellow. the Haqqanis are sort of seen as the most powerful Taliban faction in eastern Afghanistan. They've carried out many of the highest level attacks in Kabul um, over the years, and uh, they're considered the sort of most lethal uh, foe that the U.S. military faces in Afghanistan. Um, so within 48 hours of my kidnapping, uh, Badruddin Haqqani, um, the, it's a family operation. Badruddin is the younger brother of Sirajuddin Haqqani, um, who runs the Haqqani network. Uh, Badrin himself was calling the New York Times Bureau in Kabul and asking (coughs) and making uh, ransom demands within 48 hours of my kidnapping. Um, Both uh, Badrin and Sirajdin Haqqani are the sons of Jalaluddin Haqqani. He was a a Mujahideen fighters in the 1980s that the United States actually supported during the anti-Soviet Jihad. So a generation ago, the Haqqani family was our ally. Uh, This younger generation kidnapped me because I was an American. Uh, Congressman um, Charlie Wilson. Uh, visited the Haqqanis in the 1980s. He was brought over the border, and they showed him how they were carrying out these attacks on Soviet forces in uh, Afghanistan. And Congressman Wilson referred to Jalaluddin Haqqani, the patriarch of the family, as goodness personified. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was ironic what happened to me 20 years later. Um, The Haqqanis were fearful of the US military. They moved (coughs) me very quickly um, uh, towards uh, and into Pakistan. Um, I was amazed by their organization. One of the reasons I did the interview was because it was just outside of Kabul. I never thought I could be moved um, across um, um, uh, dozens of miles of Afghanistan. And I was moved across four different provinces by the Haqqani network, um, uh, from Logar outside of Kabul to Wardak to Ghazni, Paktia, and Paktika. As we moved from district to district, different Haqqani commanders would meet. Uh, the station wagon I was basically in the back uh, with my head covered by a scarf, um, and a couple motorcycles were driving with us. Uh, It was very hard for anyone to notice our (coughs) group, but we would be escorted by um, Haqqani commanders from district to district through the four provinces. I never saw any American or Afghan forces while we moved across um, the countryside, and finally we were ordered uh, one night to get out of the car and walk through the mountains. Uh, We were told that there was a large American military base in front of us blocking the road, um, and we actually spent nine hours walking through the mountains. In truth, uh, we, were, we were being lied to. We walked over the mountains from Afghanistan into <coughs> Pakistan. Uh, once we crossed into Pakistan, um, there were Urdu road signs. Um, cars drove on the left. I knew I was in Pakistan. My captors confirmed it, and I was um, astonished to see that all the government checkpoints had been abandoned by Pakistani security forces um, on the Pakistani side of the border and there were instead Taliban gunmen uh, manning each checkpoint. As our convoy moved from, we crossed and walked into an area called South Waziristan. Um, uh, The capital city there is called Wana. We moved through Wana and then we drove from Wana up to Miran Shah, the largest city in North Waziristan. Um, At each checkpoint my captors had all the passwords and were moved through very, very uh, efficiently. Uh, When we arrived in Miran Shah, uh, the Taliban, uh, specifically the Haqqani network, had full control of the town, um, and I talked about this, that uh, it was sort of a, a Taliban mini-state where Pakistani forces uh, never seemed to come off the one local military base uh, that they had. They, they simply stayed inside the boundaries of the base. Um, in the houses where we were held captive, there were radio towers set up, and the Taliban uh, and the Haqqani family had an extensive uh, ICOM uh, walkie-talkie radio system they frequently t- talked on. Um, I met and Haqqani, again he's one of the top commanders of the network and he would, had his own radio. Um, he would arrive in the houses we were held in, sometimes by car, uh, sometimes by foot. He was just very clearly comfortable moving around the town. Um, nine days into the kidnapping they had me make a call on a Thoraya satellite phone. Um, I think the Taliban know that the riyas can be traced pretty easily, and this again sort of showed how confident they were. Being in Pakistan, they they didn't care that I was making a call uh, to Kristen, and it could be easily traced in, into Pakistan. Um, uh, later on in the captivity, uh, there's a desire though by the Haqqanis to hide the fact that they're holding us prisoner in Pakistan. Uh, I made a series of videos where I would call on on. The, my family and the newspaper to meet the Taliban demands. Um, Badrinen uh, drove us for three hours so we could be taken to a snowy hillside in a remote part of Waziristan. And he filmed us there and he had me say, we're walking through the mountains of Afghanistan and, and lie about being in Pakistan. He he said, you know, say that the conditions are very terrible and that you're sick. Um, and, uh, and he was emphatic that he wanted to basically the fact that the Haqqanis were, in essence, hiding us in Pakistan. Um, During that three-hour drive, we ran into a Pakistani army resupply convoy. Um, To be fair to the Pakistani soldiers, they were visibly nervous um, when they saw uh, any vehicles on the road. They they do face attack from Taliban in the area. But what happened was disappointing. I thought, potentially, the Pakistanis would come search our car and maybe rescue us. And instead, um, the civilian vehicle in front of us pulled over to the side of the road. All the civilians got out. And then our Taliban vehicle pulled over to the side of the road, and badr Haqqani got out and just, uh, we stayed inside. And he just sort of waved to these Pakistani soldiers as they drove by. There was no effort to look in our car. Um, and, and then he got back in the car after the Pakistani uh, convoy excuse me, had uh, passed. And uh, he explained that under a truce agreement between the Taliban and the uh, Pakistani government, uh, Taliban vehicles, only the driver had to get out. Um, all the passengers could remain inside the vehicle. That obviously allowed them to move hostages around or have foreign militants in the, in the back of the vehicles. Um, they, uh, I watched uh, and had drone strikes um, uh, occur very close to the houses where we were being held captive. Uh, my captors became convinced that the United States government was trying to kill me in a drone strike. Um, this prompted them uh, to move me from, uh, again, Miran Shah, North Waziristan, which is the Haqqani, the the stronghold of the Afghan Taliban, to uh, an earlier place I spoke about, South Waziristan. And South Waziristan is the stronghold of the Pakistani Taliban, and particularly a a commander known as Baitullah Massoud. He's dead now, but he was alive when I was a prisoner. Um, So we were transferred from uh, North Waziristan to South Waziristan, and we were very afraid that we were essentially being sold from the Afghan Taliban to the Pakistani Taliban. Instead, we saw a seamless cooperation between the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban. We were held in Baitul Massoud's sort of stronghold for um, about five weeks. Um, and then when we left, I feared that the Pakistani Taliban would sort of try to grab us, but they, they did not. They respected the Afghan Taliban and apparently had an agreement with them and simply let us go. Um, in terms of how valuable the different Taliban factions thought I was, their initial demands uh, for my release was a $25 million ransom and 15 prisoners being released from Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Um, so it was impressive to me that we were able to move in and out of the area without being interfered with uh, at all. Uh, and I'm almost done here. Near the end of our captivity, we're, we're back now up in uh, Miran Shah, the, the Afghan Taliban Haqqani stronghold. Uh, There's rumors of an offensive, that the Pakistani army might actually launch an offensive and try to regain control of Miran Shah from uh, the Taliban, and my guards, who are all Afghan Taliban, got very excited. They bought a bunch of ammunition and some hand grenades and prepared themselves for this battle, and then a radio order came over that uh, uh, none of the Afghan Taliban were to fight with the Pakistani army, Hmm. Um, that if the Pakistani army were to make a move into Miran Shah, the Pakistani Taliban... Who are already fighting the Pakistani army in other places? That they would handle battling the Pakistani army, and I'm just trying to present sort of empirical evidence here. But you know that would suggest again a relationship between the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani army, and then this truce. Um, I mean, there's speculation that that as long as the Afghan Taliban carry out attacks over the border in Afghanistan against American forces, they won't have any problems with the Pakistani army. Um, I. Uh, I will leave my comments there. Um, my wife's uh, side of the story is is more important anyways and, and just as interesting.
2: Okay, well, thanks for having me. Um, I want to stress that our two experiences were very different from the get-go. We had been married two months prior to his kidnapping.
1: Um,
2: we had come back to New York after a long honeymoon in India, actually. And um, David had gone back to Afghanistan on what was supposed to be his final reporting trip for a book he was working on. I had just started um, a job at Cosmopolitan Magazine, so (laughs) that's kind of the contrast, the level of contrast we're dealing with. Um, I'd been at the job for about two weeks. Um, I was photography director. I was tying up some loose ends on some of the photo shoots the day I found out. And there was a story right before I got the call about David um, a dramatic first-person account about a hiker who had been lost in the woods and hung her bra out to alert passers-by that she was there, <laughs> and um, the story was called, My Bra Saved My Life. <laughs> um, so, you know, we had humorous moments throughout the captivity where we joked that, you know, David just needs a really good sports bra. Um, but, uh, so I found out at work, his, his brother contacted me. Um, we hadn't updated the emergency contact list at the newspaper, and we were newlyweds. So he found out first um, from local FBI agents, actually, in New Hampshire, where he lives. Um, he and then turned, he called me. Um, as I said, I found out, you know, in, in this skyscraper above Midtown Manhattan. Um, I was quickly thrust into this sort of, Shadow world, um, very complex You know, meeting with the FBI. Um, I was trained to take phone calls very early on from them um, in case the captors would be calling home. And they did, in fact, call me twice, and David called me, my first phone call. About nine days into the captivity was from David. Um, I can tell you that these calls were highly scripted on both ends, and um, I recorded all the calls and turned the tape over to the FBI. Um, the newspaper also quickly stepped in and um, we made the decision as a family, and the paper backed us up that we wanted to keep his case private. In the initial days, we weren't quite sure who had him. Um, and then as the case progressed, it was very obvious uh, the captors weren't going to succumb to the argument that holding a journalist was wrong. Um, so um, I'm tremendously grateful to the newspaper for backing us up on that. I know it went against every instinct they had, you know, as journalists. um, There was somewhat of a precedent for this. Uh, Melissa Fung had been kidnapped and actually released the day before David was grabbed, um, and that had been kept quiet. Um, I had a very steep learning curve, obviously. Um, I had only been to Pakistan once with David. I was very grateful that I had that experience because on that trip we met with students at the university, we met with journalists, um, some of whom helped me through this case. Uh, And it really underscored for me that (coughs) militancy was not the norm, it was the exception. And I always kind of kept that in mind because we were really dealing with um, the very, difficult criminal group of people. Um, Let me see what else I can say. And also in terms of keeping the case private, we had video communications come through periodically, um, four in total over the course of seven months of David. Uh, Some of the videos requested, um, you know, that we publicize his case. Um, I sensed from how David was asking us to do that, the tone of his voice, that it wasn't coming from him. It was coming from his captors. The captors were trying to, um, you know, appeal to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, President Barack Obama, um, Richard Holbrook, actually, um, you know, to, to meet demands. And we really felt as a family that if we went public, we would give them a public platform to try to negotiate with our government, and the government doesn't do that. Um, we felt a little bit limited with the FBI. You know, they, they came in and sort of coached the families to how the case might progress. Uh, but really, they can't negotiate. They can't discuss money. They can't discuss prisoners. Um, so with this in mind, um, we hired private contractors, which was a whole other sort of world of conflict <coughs> and whatnot, um, to take the calls from the captors. Um, and at one point, when those negotiations stopped, he was away for seven months. And, and there would be periods of you know, maybe six weeks of silence at a time that were just excruciating. Um, So when all that stopped, uh, they started calling me. I had two calls at home. Um, And and one little caveat, there were funny moments, or just absurd moments within this case. Um, Usually when they would call, you know, they would tell me to look at the number on caller ID and call them back because they weren't going to pay for the call. Their phone card was low on credits, <laughs> uh, you know, despite the fact they're demanding $25 million and prisoners and whatnot. So that was just kind of one of the little idiosyncrasies. Um, I can tell you that, uh, as I mentioned, it was a steep learning curve for me. I, very early on, had the uh, password to David's email. He would sometimes give it to me when he was reporting in the region um, so I could check you know, updates in case he didn't have computer access and would speak on the phone. So I went through the email. Um, I contacted people that I knew had, he had interviewed in the past, <coughs> that he trusted as sources. Um, I spoke with Marin Stramecki. Um, he is uh, sort of an Afghan, he's an Afghan expert. Um, he was uh, a member of the Nixon and Bush administrations. Um, so I talked to him in terms of the Bush group because our case spanned both um, presidencies. Uh, I spoke with Ahmed Rashid, who's a Pakistani journalist. I'm um, just looking at my little list here. Um, Richard Holbrook actually knew David from his incident in Bosnia, and um, a friend arranged for me to talk to him. And I would say that he more than any government official, uh, you know, tried to help. And there was a sense that the Haqqanis um, were perhaps assets of the ISI, the Pakistani military. You all know what that is. <laughs> Used to yeah. having an audience that doesn't, um, and so there was a sense that perhaps the ISI could pressure the Haqqanis to release David, or simply to continue contact with our family so we could reach an agreement. Um, I, you know, I believe Richard did everything he could. He arranged for our family to meet with um, senior ISI officials, actually, and, and senior uh, U.S. military officials. Uh, this was about <coughs> five or six months into the captivity. And from that, um, I learned, you know, I was repeatedly told by Pakistani officials that it was a horrible situation, but didn't I know that David was in Afghanistan, not Pakistan, despite the fact that our calls had been traced to to Shah, actually. Um, and then, you know, one final note, uh, meeting with a senior military official. Um, I was told that they didn't know where David was specifically, that a raid would never be possible. Um, we really as a family had the sense that perhaps there was information the government knew that we weren't aware of and there was something going on behind the scenes. And it was, it was really so disheartening to know that that wasn't the case. Um, our capabilities weren't as great as we thought. And um, I would say, you know, just kind of from that moment, um, I realized the outcome was probably going to be out of our hands. And, um, you know, I I sort of fell back a bit on faith, which, you know, played a major role for me throughout. But, uh, um, (coughs) you know, it was very important in the end. And um, I was completely surprised with the outcome. (laughs) We never had to pay any money, although we had to entertain that idea. Our options were pretty grim, you know, it was considering paying a ransom, considering a military raid. Um, So it was really just a difficult experience to navigate, and um, we know our experience was extreme, but it has a happy ending, and, um, you know, in writing the book, we hope it resonates with anyone going through a situation where they're dealing with uncertainty, whether it's separation from a spouse or um, making life and death decisions for a partner when they can't do that for themselves, or simply, you know, being surprised um, with a situation over which you have no control, so that's my spiel.
0: (laughs) So this is a very complex tale right yes. from the beginning and operates uh, at multiple levels. Um, let me ask a first question of David, which uh, re- reflects on this idea that the Americans may not have known or may have known and not wanted to discuss where you were. Uh, if we can't find Osama bin Laden, how can we find
1: David Rhodes? Uh, we can't find, like, I'm sorry, we, <laughs> how do I say this? We can't find either of us. <laughs> <does that>? <laughs> <laughs> I, I um, you know, one, they, I believe, you know, what this senior American military official told, Kristen, they said that they knew we were being held in the Miranshah area, and she asked, you know, do you know anything more specific than that? And, and he said, well, we're roughly talking about a 20-square-mile area no. with thousands no, of kind there. of these traditional compounds with mud-brick walls around them. And it is very difficult to know who's in that area and what's going on. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I think uh, they weren't trying to kill me as the Taliban thought. And there was actually a drone strike uh, about, I don't know, 50 to 100 yards outside of one of the houses we were living in. There were two station wagons driving by, and uh, they, they had Arab and, uh, sorry, foreign and Pakistani militants in them. And it was so close that bits of shrapnel from the, the missile strike landed in the yard of our house. Um, So I, I don't think they ever knew where we were.
0: Let me ask you a question about descending into this world of private contractors yes. because the relationship between private contractors and the military has become a, mm-hmm. a, a really mm-hmm. quite fraught one. Mm-hmm. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about,
2: about what they were like and yeah, I mean, if, and
0: Can you flesh this <laughs> out as if, as, yeah, as, as I if mean, that were the burden?
2: I had no idea about how to go about hiring a private security team. Um, the newspaper had a crisis management team that actually vetted the team we wound up hiring, um, so we trusted you know, their opinion. Um, and, and most of these... Groups are sort of composed of former military um, or FBI agents, um, occasionally CIA agents, um, and they all sort of compete with each other. You know, they were very... Our private team was um, very critical of the FBI and didn't want to share information, um, very secretive about getting on the phone. In fact, we had, you know, um, hushmail accounts and things like that, (laughs) you know. Um, So it was sort of a spooky world, and it was very difficult at times to... They claimed they had local resources on the ground that were giving them information. Um, and it was very difficult to know um, if the local sources weren't telling the truth or if our team was embellishing at times. Um, so uh, yeah, But and the other thing that was really difficult in this instance. The whole model that these teams use to negotiate for release of hostages is based on Colombia and South America, and that you know that requires you to be on the phone and have some sort of okay. um, dialogue back and forth. That was not the case. Um, our team was actually based in Afghanistan. Okay. Um, the Haqqanis would often send out emissaries, um, and in fact, they would send <coughs> out former hostages. Um, there was one gentleman who's mentioned in the book who was an engineer. Uh, had worked with the Afghan army, and his son was being held captive while David was, and he was sent out to work on David's release and the release of his son. Um, so it was really, um, you know, very difficult. Uh, it, you know, we hired the contractors because there was a gap, you know. Mm-hmm. We were advised to strike up some sort of negotiation by the FBI, um, and they gathered information off our case. But in the end, they really couldn't advise as closely.
0: Um. So privatization hasn't worked successfully in this field entirely yeah, either. You know. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, let me take some questions over here. Uh, uh, first of all, um, I, re- I, do, I did read all the articles, and just re- remind me uh, why uh, uh, David was released. But the second question <coughs> relates um, to what's going on currently. Is there anything you have written or Uh, That the U.S. had learned uh, as a result of your capture, that was that there's anything incremental from WikiLeaks, or if we just, um, uh, was there anything new there? I guess I would say in terms of uh, in terms of our
2: in in terms of
0: what's going on, in terms of what you Mm -hmm. discovered was going on, did we learn anything? Uh, Basically, we're talking about Pakistan, the ISI, and and uh, Afghanistan. But uh, brings up to first of all, your release.
1: I um I escaped from captivity. Um, and uh, with an Afghan journalist who was kidnapped with me. We managed him. While our guards were asleep, we made it to that local Pakistani military base um, and were let on that base by a moderate young Pakistani captain who saved our lives and (coughs) let me call home. Um, The, uh, I mean, uh, in terms of WikiLeaks, uh, you know, there was actually a couple references to our case, but it was very basic stuff about one of the tapes video. that had, yeah, they they tried to get Al Jazeera to play one of their uh, the videos, the snow video actually, where I you know was supposed to be walking through the mountains of Afghanistan, and Al Jazeera actually did not play it, um, so it was just sort of a, a cable about that. Um, and in terms of the current situation, there was actually a story um, a couple um, about probably three weeks ago now in the Nation, and um, it was a follow up on my case, and uh, this journalist talked to an Afghan who had very close ties to the Taliban and my kidnappers. And what happened after our escape was that this feud broke out among the Taliban. And um, it was between the Haqqanis and then this, ki- this uh, commander who invited me to the interview and kidnapped me and brought me to the Haqqanis. And um, basically the Haqqanis said um, uh, they suspected the kidnapper himself. Um, our, our chief guard was the kidnapper's younger brother and what the hakani's did was they arrested this this guy the younger brother was the chief guard and said you were secretly paid a ransom and you cheated the hakani's out of the money and they they kind of said oh you gave them you know this So piece the state of rope. was caged in their view is yes. that the point yeah? Okay. so they right. said so they said uh, the family of this commander you know they gave us the rope and you know and then at the same time the, this family and this chief guard said no, 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 the Haqqanis were paid a secret ransom and they screwed you know, our family out of money and they drugged our food. That's how we were asleep when you know, David and, and Tahir slipped away. Um, and uh, what the Haqqanis did was they um, arrested the younger brother and another guard and they actually turned them over to ISI, to Pakistani intelligence. And the ISI then had two of my kidnappers in their custody. Um, they uh, pretty brutally interrogated the younger brother, they tortured him, held him for at least a month, um, according to the story. And uh, once they had come to the conclusion that no bribes were paid and no ransom was paid, um, instead of turning over these guards to American officials, they simply let them go. Um, you know, their primary focus seemed to be whether or not the, the Haqqanis, you know, their, the ISI's proxies, had been cheated out of money. And once that wasn't clear, they they just let the let the two guards go out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Yes, over here. I Would you identify yourselves as we go around? Mm-hmm. That was Jonathan. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. I'm Anna Gorman. I'm a
0: Neiman Fellow this year. Um, I had a question for Kristen. I'm I'm a little I'm concerned and, and interested to hear about mm-hmm. your emotional state during uh-huh. this when the kidnapping mm-hmm.
3: occurred
2: when he right. escaped. What your feelings were towards David, towards the kidnappers,
4: okay. did you work during
2: this period? I'll just a little more about yeah. the emotional um, The initial, as I said, I, I found out at work. Um, my initial reaction, you know, I married a war correspondent, so I knew there was risk in what he did. We talked about what to do if, you know, he, he died on a trip or if he was injured. We never specifically discussed kidnapping. Um, you know, yet it was always kind of a fear I had. So when I found out, I remember kind of everything stopping, I was a bit numb when I first heard and thinking, you know, this is my worst fear come true. Uh, But then I quickly, I I don't know, I think your mind and and your body sort of protect you. Um, I quickly found the resolve to sort of take each moment as it came um, to try to learn as much as I could. Um, He had left a note, actually, at at the Kabul Bureau of the New York Times, which one of his colleagues scanned and sent to me. And it said, you know, if I'm kidnapped, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And um, my initial reaction, I, I was angry he hadn't consulted me. Um, but I have to say, I quickly realized, you know, the blame was to lie with the kidnappers. <laughs> he didn't arrange to have himself kidnapped. Um, and, and in an odd way, that initial anger, I think his family felt similar. Um, you know, we dealt with sort of trauma specialists throughout, too, the FBI and whatnot, and uh, I was told actually that those initial moments of anger, you know, being angry at the victim um, <coughs> gives you the sense that they have some sort of agency over what's happening to them. They have some control. In reality, it's it's so harrowing to think that your loved one, you know, can't can't move about freely. It has no say in the matter, so um, I think that was a bit of a protection as well. Um, and then as the months progressed, I actually, I have to give Cosmopolitan a lot of credit. Um, two weeks into the kidnapping, I told the editor-in-chief and the managing editor what had happened. Uh, they were tremendous about keeping the secret and women's magazines, you know, there's there are no secrets usually, <laughs> so they were fantastic. Um, I kept working, um, partially for sanity's sake and then practical reasons, you know, um, I was the breadwinner at that point. And um, it also gave me a sense initially of normalcy, but, you know, my days consisted of going to work late usually um, because the FBI would come over to the apartment in the morning, you know, on days where they thought maybe I'd be getting a call and those calls would never come. Um, I'd be interrupted for a noon call, updates from the New York Times, the security team, and the New York Times' crisis management team. Very often the different entities would be at odds with each other, um, so there was a fair amount of uh, policing that we had to do as a family, too, (laughs) believe it or not, and um, uh, my mother actually came in and stayed with me, and I have to say, like, that enabled me to be able to work on his case, still be at work. Um, She really made sure that I did the basic things, like eating and sleeping,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, and that's really what people need in a crisis, (laughs) you know. Um, You know, anger at his captors kind of kept me going. I hated the idea... That we were victims of this crime, so I tried to feel as proactive as I could. Um, and his brother worked very closely on the case with me. But we also, you know, tried to step back and be like, "Gee, you know, our our own personalities getting in the way here. We're both very private people. Should it be public or not?" We we made that decision to keep it private. Like every week, we revisited it. Um, and as the case dragged on, we were like, well, "Maybe it should be public," um, but we felt that our government knew enough about it and was was doing enough. They, they couldn't do much, um, but they were very responsive to us, so we didn't feel like we needed to pressure our government, um, which would have been the main reason, actually, to go public. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, you know, as it dragged on and we hit the six-month mark, that was a big turning point for me. It was no longer just months. It was half a year. <laughs> um and uh as i said i realized you know the outcome was maybe not going to be within my control um had talked to alan johnston who'd been held captive and he had said something to me on the phone that you know what david is going through is horrible but he'll adapt and he can picture you and your family and your home um for family members you have no idea what his circumstance is it does you no good to try to imagine it and he said something that resonated It was like you know Try to still find those small moments of joy. Don't feel badly, you know, if you, um, you know, don't feel badly if you're enjoying a shower and you don't know if David can do that or if you're having a cup of coffee and whatnot. And um, that was tremendously helpful, um, as was the family support. And uh, yeah. and I really didn't have a chance to take in the depth of the sadness of the situation until after he came back. Um, and just briefly finding out about the escape. <laughs> Uh, You know, it was a a tremendous surprise, Um, but my first thoughts were, oh, no, Um, you know, it's very dangerous to, it's one thing to walk over the wall of this house he was in, but another to get out of Waziristan, to get out of Miran Shah. I worried he'd be handed over to another group. Um, I worried the ISI would detain him. Um, Something would happen to the helicopter when he was flown out, all of that. Um, And in the end, it was a sleepless night, but in the end, we had a happy reunion and a happy ending so I hit the whole range of emotions
1: <laughs> um, I just want to yeah. say on the I mean we're on, I'm on a obviously the decision to go to this interview without consulting my new wife was a terrible one and I'll always regret it and I was <laughs> know, I have real, to say nobody suffered more than he did from that decision um, <laughs> and, and, and I've I mean as a you know well, very quickly into the captivity I, I mean I decided that my days as a war correspondent are over that my wife and family have sort of been through enough and uh but I, I really regret that decision.
0: What
3: the well, you I have th- said.
1: I thought that everything would be fine, was my. Uh, <clears throat> my I, And I, I did try to research this very thoroughly and have the name of the commander and talk to these other journalists who'd met him. His phone number, you know, left the place where we were meeting, and everything went completely uh, wrong.
0: I'm actually going to turn to Nick Daniloff, who's sitting right behind me, who had the experience as an American journalist of being arrested and held by the Soviets. Oh, wow. So you might have some notes to compare here tonight. Um, well, hi, David. It's nice great to be see you here
1: in these circumstances. Um, I wonder if you'd go over the escape part, getting over the wall. What were you thinking? Were you terribly nervous once you get onto the street? What were your thoughts? Am I really going to make it or not? Um, uh, I kept thinking uh, that the guards were going to wake up um, in the beginning of the attempt. I, I mean, I thought that it would fail. And we, we, we were, you know, uh, in our la- our kidnapper kind of came and went. And like I said, we were always living with this older brother, I'm sorry, this younger brother of his. And in the last meeting with us, he had announced to me that the only reason President Obama had gone to Saudi Arabia in, uh, I believe it was May of 2009, was to talk about my case and nothing else. That, that was sort of the level of, of delusion. Uh, their demands at that point had come down to $8 million in ransom and the release of four prisoners. Um, and it was just absurd. And so and anger was a primary motivator as well. Um, and uh, lastly, we had realized that this last house they'd moved us to, um, we'd only been there for two weeks, was only about three-tenths of a mile from the main Pakistani military base in town. And we realized this was... The time to try because we, we would never be as clo- so close to the base again and it showed how relaxed our captors were and how little they feared from the Pakistani military that they held us that close um, we used this car tow rope, we snuck out of the room while they were asleep used <coughs> this car tow rope I had found to lower ourselves down this wall and, and it, it was not exhilarating to walk down this kind of street in the middle of Miran Shah, you know, freely for the first time in seven months. I was terrified that an even more militant group would, would get us um, we had not agreed on where we were going to go. Uh, we were sort of during the we talked about escaping for months and kind of agreed on this plan that afternoon. Um, the power had come back on that afternoon as well. There was a ceiling fan in the room where we slept with the guards and a, an old basic air conditioner called a cooler. And that made a lot of noise. that's why we also decided to go that night. But we we got outside, and Tahir actually wanted to walk to the Afghan border, which was at least 15 miles, and I wanted to go to the Pakistani base. And we were actually walking through the streets of, well, down this riverbed, arguing with each other about where to go. Um, He had hurt his ankle when we came down the wall, and so he eventually agreed that we should try to go to the base. Um, And I was just petrified. And the only kind of final... I mean, it didn't even, and then when we first got to the base, I didn't even realize we were at the base because we were really not talking very much because uh, of the risk. And I, at first, thought we'd been recaptured by the Taliban when, you know, I heard men load their guns and start shouting at us. And um, um, we spent ten minutes standing there with our hands up. Um, the Pakistanis thought we were suicide bombers. They let us walk over this earthen burn we get closer. They had us lie on the ground. And then finally they had us take our shirts off to show we weren't wearing suicide vests. Um, and they brought us on the base. And that was the first. Uh, I met this Pakistani officer who could speak English. And um, he, like, uh, he was just so polite to us. And then met this, this other, this captain I write about a lot, um, who apologized to me for our kidnapping. And he apologized to me as a Pakistani. Uh, gave me a book called uh, The Glorious Islam and sort of said mm-hmm. that the Taliban were um, distorting, you know, his faith. And he was ashamed of it and uh, he let me call New York and that's the best part yeah. is I called and my, my um, Kristen wasn't home so my mother-in-law answered the phone. <laughs> and, Rarely uh, has a mother-in-law's <laughs> voice been so well right? <laughs> And, uh, you know, she took down yeah. the information about the base we were on and that's when I started thinking we might actually, you know, this might actually work.
0: Okay. Yes, I'm going to go over here because I need to turn over. Right now, Richard, and then I'm going to come to you. Yeah, I'm
4: Richard Sobel. A long time ago I was uh, Fellow, and I've taught the military and the media at the Medill School. Uh, an incredible story and wonderful to be able to hear it. I- I'm curious, one of you made the comment that our government doesn't do it. There were complicated factors in terms of what the government was doing, what you describe as the newspaper, willing to do or not willing to do, private contractors. I- I'm curious, know how these factors work together and and a footnote to my question is couldn't find you or Osama bin Laden, did you hear anything about (laughs) Osama bin Laden and
1: his whereabouts or his political influence while you were in captivity? To start from the last question, um, I I never ran into any Al-Qaeda members, any foreigners. I was always with Afghans or Pakistanis. Um, my guards did refer to Osama bin Laden as Sheikh Osama, this honorific term. And um, and I want to emphasize I was with the sort of most hardcore Taliban. I think that sort of the Taliban fighting in their village in, uh, in southern Afghanistan are more concerned with kind of controlling that, that area. Um, my guards, because they're around <laughs> these foreigners and the tribal areas are really a fulcrum, um, they, at one point, told me the story of a legend of an army of black flags uh, emerging from Afghanistan. Uh, they used the term Khorasan, which is the ancient name, and liberating the holy cities in Saudi Arabia from the apostate you know, regime there. So what was disturbing was that these young Afghans and Pakistanis were kind of buying into the whole you know, al-Qaeda ideology of needing to create this emirate that spans the Islamic world. Um, on the government, they would not pay ransom. They would not release prisoners. You know, the U.S. government really does not negotiate with terrorist groups. The, the problem is that um, European governments uh, do pay ransoms. Um, they won't, you know, confirm it officially. But prior to my case, there was an <laughs> Italian journalist um, that uh, the Italian government uh, got cars out to release five prisoners, five Taliban prisoners for his release. Um, The French government is rumored to pay ransoms, um, and my captors, because there's no coordination, they basically don't believe that. They think, oh, the U.S. government does pay ransoms. Um, Just again, how delusional they are, they, if you remember the American sea captain that was kidnapped off the coast of Somalia, um, and and the three um, Somali pirates were shot by American snipers, my captors thought that was all a lie, and that the U.S. government had secretly paid $25 million in that case. Um, The contractors had this network. (laughs) of they were paying Afghan informants um, on the Afghan side of the border and for information. And they were going and, you know, and saying, we went in and we're going into the tribal areas and getting information about where I was being held. They did that for about four months. And they produced this really detailed reports. Uh, you know that uh, David's been separated from his two <laughs> Afghan colleagues. Here's the name of the owner of the house. Here's the name of a guard. Uh, he's in this village on the border. Um, You know, and then a few weeks later, okay, now he's back with Tahir and Assad, they're in this village, Um, you know, and then the last, you know, know, he's with Chechen and Punjabi guards. Um, All of the details that came from these paid informants were wrong. Um, And, you know, I I looked very carefully at the emails and everything that they they went through. Um, The last one, they did have us correctly in Miran Shah, but they said we were being moved around the town all the time in a black Suzuki Jeep. And my conclusion was that um, I think these paid informants are what people on that border have done. They were doing what people on the border have done for centuries. When foreigners are paying them for information, they tell them what they want to hear. Um,
2: I would add one other point with our government. You know, there were many individuals with, you know, within the FBI, the State Department, willing to help us and very passionate about our case. But there was very little information sharing between those different agencies. In fact, it was very competitive um, and, you know, the FBI couldn't declassify something the CIA had classified. So that was, you know, the, the FBI came to us one day and they were, you know, so excited that they could tell us one of the kidnappers was Badgerdeen Haqqani. Um, our family's experience of the FBI, they were the lead, the lead agency. Uh, for kidnappings, Um, and as I said, you know, they were great at at letting us know how the case might progress and training me to take calls and things like that. Very early on, they swoop in and you don't know that they don't necessarily have to be involved in your case, Um, but we kept in contact with them throughout and gave them information. There were a few sort of glitches in dealing with them, Um, the first of which, in the early days, the kidnappers were calling the Kabul Bureau of the paper. There was an FBI agent kind of helping them talk on the phone. Um, And I would get updates, uh, and so the New York Times, from these reporters about their local outreaches, trying to learn about David's kidnapper. I would be emailed this update every morning, and our our, um, FBI and counterterrorism officers, you know, at one point, a couple weeks into it, they're like, you know, you get these updates in the morning, would you mind forwarding them to us because it has to clear, um, you know, our our protocol and declassification, so they would see it 12 hours after I would, which You know, made me a little, it it didn't instill confidence. Um, And then there was an instance where we were going to move the call center, thinking the captors would be calling on a regular basis, um, to New York and uh, have the FBI sort of, you know, advise us to a certain point. And um, they weren't able to come up with a translator because the translator had um, had, had to be a U.S. citizen. There were all these requirements. Um, and we were able to find like three or four translators through the newspaper um, you know so that one-way flow of information was
4: okay um, my name is uh, Luis I'm, um, I'm a student here at the Kennedy school um, I'm from Denmark and I am an instructor in the Danish Army where we I teach a concept called conduct after capture so um, I'm very interested in knowing some more about your interaction uh, with the captors um, what did you do what country conscious effort did you make to sort of maintain your mental and physical health and um, how big a part uh, did culture and communication play? How much interaction did you have? Was the Afghan journalist your interpreter or did you communicate directly with them? And what effort did you make uh, in order to observe cultural habits, religious beliefs? And did you get any feedback on your own behavior towards Mm -hmm. your captors? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I uh uh I, misunder- I mean, there's a tremendous cultural difference. One of the things I did <coughs> at the very beginning was I, um, um, I you know, told them how much I missed my wife. I was trying to very much, you know, in a sense I was a sort of very frightened journalist. I, I, the biggest danger is that they'll consider you a spy. They're enormously suspicious that all journalists are spies. Um, but, you know, saying you missed your wife and I cried in the initial part of the captivity to sort of play, you know, play everything up. Um, in, to the Taliban, if you're crying, that means that you're somehow guilty. Because uh, a Pashtun never wants to show that they're weak. Um, and it's very shameful to show weakness. So that actually made them more suspicious that I cried. And then um, the idea that you might want to, uh, um, you know go back and, and see your family um, is a sign that you're too caught up in sort of earthly pleasures. If you believe in God, you really don't care about this world. You don't care about your wife and your family. Um, and so they, they saw my you know, I said I just I've only been married two months and I mean they actually and I was treated very well. I was never beaten. I was given a bottle of water throughout. And I this same wedding ring, which Kristen put on my finger when we married, they never stole it. And so I showed them this very wedding ring, which uh, I won't take off which has Kristen's name engraved in it inside. And that just kind of made them think you're not religious. And they are deeply, deeply religious. That's, that's so important to them. Um, they also you know, thought
2: the ring was, was big, and so therefore we had a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was that was another way
1: that it sort of backfired. Um, and then a big issue was religion, um, and they did pressure me to convert to Islam. Um, I resist, I did not, and I was lucky to resist that. I, I've talked to other hostages in other countries who did convert to Islam, and they felt that was actually a very helpful thing to do. It helped them survive, um, it, it led to better treatment from their captors, and, um, um, but I, you know, I, I was very lucky for how, because of how well I was treated. Um, and lastly, the reason they treated me so well, though, was because they were just so convinced about money. And, and so, does you know, eager to get money, they called me the Golden Rooster, um, and that's why they you know would give me this bottle of water when I got sick. They would bring you know medicine, mm-hmm. cipro. You know, IV. you know, I never needed it, but they had IVs, um, anything you would need um, to keep me healthy. We can talk more afterwards on yeah, yeah. specific questions.
4: Um, Sandy Rowe, I'm a Shorenstein Fellow. Mm-hmm. Even given the New York Times explanation of the secrecy and your explanation of the secrecy, I still find myself puzzled on several levels. So I think I have maybe a three-part question, the first two for Kristen and the, and the last one for you, David. Um, one is on a practical level, when you multiply the number of people in the New York Times both in yes. the crisis team and in the editorial staff. And family members and neighbors of family members and work colleagues of yours and then all the professionals involved. I'm interested in how how practically it stayed secret Mm -hmm. that long because that's a pretty damn big universe, Mm -hmm. which usually doesn't happen in newspapers. Mm -hmm. Um, Second, uh, as part of that, I'm interested. You said it was a family decision. I'm interested in what pressure you got got. or or whether the FBI at different times thought, well, maybe it would help if it was Mm -hmm. so sort of the input you were getting on that. And then, David, if you don't mind following her, that's I still, I, I can't help from, from the, the week of your incredibly strong stories, wondering how that has changed your view or how in terms of, I think of how many times any of us who are journalists have talked to families um, who through no actions of their own are thrust into the limelight or tragedy who have beseeched us to keep it out of the paper or not Mm -hmm. to write about it, and how we deal with that. And so I guess I'm wondering if um, it's changed your view of (coughs) individuals' control when they're newsworthy.
2: Um, As I said, we made the decision to keep it private initially. That was somewhat of a personal decision. I knew he would not want to be part of a story. Um, We also weren't dealing with a legitimate government that we could publicly shame. Um, we were dealing with, you know, extremists, so we really felt it was so unpredictable. Um, keeping it private was the right thing. As I mentioned, it's a decision we made, like, weekly, um, depending on what was going on globally. When the Mumbai attacks happened, we actually kind of rediscussed discussed the issue with the paper. Um, the FBI, you know, in the first few days, I thought <coughs> maybe we could go public and, and make the moral case. Um, in my gut, I didn't think that was going to work. So, um, The family didn't take their advice. Um, And later on, they advised us to keep it private. Um, The security team from the beginning said, keep it private, you know, talk to as few people as possible. I actually um, met with several former hostages, um, one of whom, um, Jerry Van Dyke, he's since written a book, Mm -hmm. so I can Mm -hmm. talk about him now. Mm -hmm. He was tremendous to meet with me. Um, He was still a little shaken from his experience, but put that aside. He, you know, he said keep it private. His news organization had done that, um, and his his case remained private throughout. Actually, and and he had been held by the Taliban, um, and you know, made the point that Pashtunwali would kick in. That's their honor code, under which you know they treat prisoners as guests. He also pointed out to me that that you know he'd be treated like a guest, but they could behead him at any moment. And and who knows what they could do psychologically and whatnot. Um, so I, I took his advice. Um, there was another individual who actually has spent some time at Harvard, Michael Semple, um, who has um, done some work with trying to talk to the Taliban. <coughs> um, I talked to him throughout. Um, I tried to, you know, this is, uh, I tried everything. Um, I tried to get a hold of Haqqani elders mm-hmm. through this network, through a mullah that Michael actually knew. Um, to make the moral case. So we tried to do that all mm-hmm. along and um, to no avail. And, and throughout, throughout the captivity, individuals in Afghanistan would come forward to our team in Kabul and say they had information about David. I would get text messages from foreign journalists, <laughs> um, Afghan journalists working in the area, stating that, you know, they'd met with Siraj Akhani. Did I want to pass a message about our case? Um, in the, in the <laughs> case of journalists, nobody asked for money. But in many other instances, people asked for money, and we felt, and we were advised, that making the case public would bring... would increase uh, that. Exactly, exactly,
1: yeah. David? Um, I I thought it was definitely the right decision to keep it private. Um, Part of this work we're doing with the Committee to Protect Journalists, I've talked to other captives, and it's whenever your um, Islamists have you, publicity just kind of raises their expectations, and they won't be shamed into reducing their demands because they want to defy uh, Western public opinion. Um, in terms of um, the paper's decision, um, I mean, journalists all the time don't put information in their stories. Um, we, particularly crime victims, you know, if there's a, if a rape victim, we won't name them. If there's a mob informant in a trial, we won't name them. You know, this is arguably a life or death um, decision. Um, I mean, we don't name people because we don't want them to lose their jobs in the administration. Um, so, this expectation that the press is constantly just diverting, you know, disclosing every single detail they know um, isn't really accurate. I absolutely agree, though, that there's got to be a consistent policy where you don't just do this for journalists. Um, the Times' policy now is that when a family requests it, they will not publicize a kidnapping because it's a crime and a life or death situation. Um, you know, when it's, whether it's an aid worker or a contractor or anyone else, it should not be something just just done, uh, just done for journalists i to go the
4: back. changed, didn't it? i go so to go back. Did they
1: have that policy before? We're
0: starting to run out of time. I want to get one question over they, here and then a second They had abided here. by
1: it in the kidnappings. <clears throat> several there, there are, several journalists were kidnapped in Iraq. Um, this has been going on for quite a while before me and of Fung, the Canadian journalist.
2: One quick Kristen, point. Sorry. Mentioned. One more on the, um The Times' policy with us was they would not report it, but if another news organization broke the story, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. would report it. That's
0: We'll take one back here quickly. So,
3: man, thanks for being here Lieutenant Colonel Mark, sir. I'm a Air Force aviator been over in country mm-hmm. uh, just getting back to a point about the stressing in your learning curve for as far as what you learn to talk to them about for example we fly with the uh, pictures of our male children uh, I love my wife but uh, mm-hmm. the stress and masculinity in that society we fly with pictures of our kids yeah. uh, male kids only and, and the stress of those kind of things so my my con or my point to you or my story or my question really is is uh, this new organization you guys are working with to uh, educate people have you paired up with uh, the lessons that the military has learned from a captivity, especially relevant to this mm-hmm. culture, and then there are slight differences between uh, what our places we go in the world for other cultures mm-hmm. that we interact with. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same point that the uh, my colleague over mm-hmm. here was talking about as far as uh, you know those kind of lessons. Are you bringing those to your community, and are you lashed up with some of the lessons that are out there in the military?
1: We're, we're trying. I mean, we're working with the committee to protect journalists. <laughs> and the only problem is that we, as journalists, are very leery of being too closely associated with the American military, because yes, there right, is this problem. Yeah, that we, you know, we are serving the public, we're not, a, you know, an arm of, of the government, but there are these, you know, like in any uh, field, there and contractors work very hard in our case, mm-hmm. so there are former military people that, you know, work no, with news organizations from these security firms that try to advise journalists. My, my question really is education
3: now to the other people that are following in your state. In other words, are you yes. teaching people now I've, to I've, go to yes. country with you know yep. religious I've symbol? Talk, I'm completely yes. open about
1: talking to people about my experience and what what I learned from, For any, from any organization. Sorry, Andrew
3: D'Amico, uh, Major United States Army. I was in uh, country uh, during your captivity as well. Oh, okay. Um, and and <clears throat> at the time, things are are heating up in Afghanistan. Um, and you've already mentioned that uh, one of the things you learned is, is your war reporting days are over. Um, you had the indicators. You had the red flag. Uh, it, is, it seems to me very foolish to go to this Taliban commander, and I, I know you're thinking that as well, especially looking back, <coughs> uh, hindsight 2020. Um, what other things have you learned going forward?
1: Uh, I mean, I would, you know, dozens of journalists have interviewed Taliban commanders, and it is our job to try to get, you know, both sides of the story. Um, you know, I, I went to this interview too quickly, but I, I wouldn't, um, you know, I want to sort of defend journalism and, and journalists and, and our need to get out there and, and be independent. Uh, unfortunately, we've, like, lost our neutrality. We really can't move around Afghanistan, um, you know, where I was, you know, um, I was basically told I was guilty of the crimes of the American government. and. Um, um, and, and there, and there are other Taliban commanders that do respect journalist neutrality but this one didn't. Um, you know, there's a million lessons. You know, in the end, it's it's only your, your family is what's going to have your back. <coughs> um, you know, and uh, Kristen was just incredible. Uh, my parents, uh, in a small but related well, an incredible and related thing. We'd only been married two months, and they uh, quickly said they deferred to Kristen completely on all decisions, whether would she approve a military raid or not. Um, and she was just. You know, they were incredible, and in that they were able to step back, and in a situation where they wanted to do so much, they kind of let go of control. So, you know, it's your family in the end that suffers from your decisions more than anyone else. And I, you know, I, I obviously regret going. I regret, um, you know, the time and resources that chewed up because I know there was efforts initially by the military to yes. find me <laughs> in Afghanistan, and before people realized I'd been taken over the border, and I and I just I regret. The loss of those resources in that time.
0: I'm afraid we've passed the uh, one o'clock hour, and many kids have to get to class. So I want to thank each <coughs> of you. This has been a remarkable story, and um, Godspeed.